So two steps in making a successful app business are make something worth using and then put it in front of the people who would use it. If you have a plant and you don't know what to do with it, we solved that problem. So what we did is we reached out to a bunch of plant retailers. Hey, we will help your customers have a positive outcome with your product. Can you put in our little QR code? And now like when these retailers ship out a new plant, every single one of them has this little QR code in it. It led to our first 15,000 users, I'd say. You're listening to the Subclub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Subclub Podcast. I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me as always, Jacob Eiding. Hello, Jacob. Happy to be here. <laughs> you sound incredibly happy. That's great. It's a Friday, David. The sun is shining. They're 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 grilling a bunch of chickens in my hometown. I, I got nothing to complain about. It's gonna be great. Our guest today is Alex Ross, founder and CEO at Gregarious, makers of Greg, an app to help you grow healthier and happier plants. Prior to founding Gregarious, Alex spent four years as director of engineering at Tinder. Alex also co-founded Inplug, a digital signage company that was acquired earlier this year. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Thank you, guys. Good to see you. Thanks, David, Jacob. Hi. So I'm going to try really hard this whole podcast to not call you Greg, but I've made that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking like, I get like annoying company name questions sometimes. I'm like, I'm sure you get way worse than me. <laughs> oh, but, I mean, I'm considering just legally adopting Greg as like a, you know, alias or something. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a news cycle right there. <laughs> a little bit of earned PR. Yeah. <laughs> So I wanted to ask you, um, so obviously, you know, director of engineering at Tinder, that's, I mean, what a rocket ship that must've been quite a wild ride. So um, tell me a little bit about, about how you ended up at Tinder. And then, um, you know, if you do have any fun um, war stories from there, that'd be great to, uh, to hear. Yeah, definitely. It was a rocket ship. Uh, definitely some, some war stories, some wins, some losses. Uh, so I, I came across Tinder. Um, I was looking to get into like a consumer application. Um, so I was interviewing with Uber and Twitter. And then I came across Tinder on uh, AngelList, actually. The head of recruiting at the time reached out to me and I kind of took it on a whim. Uh, to be honest, I had not used the app before um, before even interviewing or anything. Um, that's kind of a challenge for Tinder is like, do you how many of the teammates need to use Tinder? Because a lot of people are married and in relationships and those are great people to have on the team. And so it makes <laughs> kind of difficult or complicated. Um, but basically I joined when it was around 70 people, if I recall. Um, so it was a pretty small team. There was already a global user base. So it was one of the scrappiest uh, global brands I think probably has ever existed. Because <laughs> um, this was all right before Tinder, or right around the time that Tinder launched its first monetization efforts. And so there wasn't really awareness as to like, great, there's this like large global, many millions of people are using this thing, but is it going to make money, right? That was still an open question um, at the time that I joined. Um, so yeah, basically I joined and it was very... Um, is definitely still a startup. Uh, and so there was not a lot of structure. <laughs> and uh, I think my manager changed on the first day, like the person I was technically <laughs> working with, desk changed. And, uh, but I had a great time. And um, basically I ended up creating the growth team. So I became very focused on um, growing the international user base. And uh, one of the coolest things that that team did is we decoupled Tinder from Facebook. And this was from Facebook login, because like Tinder came to came to fame by having, you know, you tap one button, it imports your Facebook photos. It basically made online dating as easy as it possibly can be. Because like you push a button, you're in, and then you're dating, right? And by making it that simple, it made it so you, you felt less desperate by using it, I think is like one of the important uh, psychological, you know, dynamics mm. of Tinder. Because if you feel like you have to work to start using that application, then maybe it means that like you aren't having as much success dating in, in the real world. And so by making it simpler, it made it less stigmatized, more cool, right? Uh, and so when we decided to then allow people to create accounts um, with a phone number, that introduced all this complexity around like, well, are people gonna wanna do that work? Um, then they have to add profile photos, they have to type in their name, you have to introduce an onboarding process, you have to worry about 
spam. Um, so in any case, my, my team led that decoupling of Facebook and Tinder. And this was like wow. pre-Cambridge Analytica, pre-GDPR. So it was definitely prescient. It was like, it was a lot of good foresight. And it did lead, it, it was a very successful project. Um, and so that was kind of what I cut my teeth on at Tinder. And then from there, I ended up um, creating the trust and safety team. So we then kind of took on anti-spam, which is a major problem for any global consumer, especially a brand that you're introducing people to each other. Like you're introducing strangers to each other. Mm-hmm. That is a spammer's dream. There's be so much abuse on Tinder. So right? much abuse. It was, yeah. oh, it was staggering. Yeah, 24-7. Um, and so we ended up creating a team kind of bottoms up this is a cool effort because it wasn't like an executive said like, oh, Tinder needs to needs to create this team, but rather it was a collection of engineers that were very motivated to solve this problem. Um, and so we, we created a trust and safety team again before before GDPR, like this was before the world was really focused on um, privacy and, and data security and yeah. protecting users very consciously. It's, it's interesting because now, um, you know, I think even with like Clubhouse recently had had issues here i think now the expectation is you need trust and safety from day one yeah even five or six years ago wasn't really the case it was kind of like well just grow and then you'll solve it later um so that was i would say early days for even that concept of like a whole dedicated team to those 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 aspects yeah if you're meeting people in public my my god like you need (laughs) good (laughs) trust and safety features yeah you really need to try to protect people because there are there's a rare selection of people that are not great right so yeah so then tell us a little bit about the the transition from being a tender to founding a company. Because you, you had founded companies before, Nplug, yeah. um, and been at yeah. um, other large companies before Tinder. But yeah, yeah. What, what led you to, uh, to found Gregarious? Yeah, I actually saw Jacob and I shared an experience interning at Cisco Systems. Is that right? Did really? <laughs> yeah. yeah we Wait, when? Were we at the same like onboarding? Yeah. No, no. Okay. I was I was actually in a finance organization. So I was doing oh, okay. like internal auditing. Um it was crazy. I was on a team that like investigated other people for for like uh you know, abusing their corporate cards and stuff like that. So there'd be like interesting internally. Internally. Yeah, it was Oof. a very They've had interns on that team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. No, this is this is a unique yeah. I was definitely the only intern. Yeah, wow. I was testing uh I was testing phones. So I'm actually not sure which one of those is more boring. I think actually you <laughs> might have had me. So <laughs> that's, a, that's a tie. That's a tie for sure. Um yeah, so I got exposure. Cisco is interesting for anybody who doesn't know because you have to drive between meetings, right? Because the campus is so <laughs> the Tasman campus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it talk about oh my gosh, culture. Um yeah, so the the process leading up to to starting Greg was very deliberate um, because I had done a startup before and um, that company had gone to success, successful outcome, but it was a lot of hard work. It was honestly grueling, uh, definitely like a uh, hardest challenge in my life. And uh, so I knew that I wanted to be involved in starting a company and building a culture from the ground up again, um, but I knew that I wanted to do it differently. Um, and so basically there was a lot of preparation thinking about really the, the main thing I was thinking about is what is the industry that I want to be working in? Um, Because I think that startups often don't go the way you expect, um, but you can learn so much. And so I was really thinking like, okay, what do I want to become an expert at, right? Like, what do I want? If it doesn't work out in the way we expect, what would I like to have learned four years, five years, seven years worth of information about? And uh, I really kept coming back to science. um, And I wanted to to kind of use my engineering experience and pivot that into um, more real world, like physical phenomena, right? And like understanding how the universe works. That's amazing. And, and so that's really a lot of the thesis of Greg is that we apply computer science and software engineering to this specific uh, domain of how do plants work, right? And, and basically the, the dots kind of connect looking backwards, but it was a process of discovery of like what's an area that's emerging and like kind of changing like where is there an opportunity right because i think it's helpful to position yourself at a a place where either you can cause change or there's change already happening and uh right now like a lot of people know there's climate change um and there's also a lot of uh, rapid things happening in plant science world um specifically around like crispr and plant genetics and stuff like that really at the, the deep end of it which we can get into but it's like way deep um, <laughs> but, uh, but basically, uh, this was before the pandemic. So we were actually looking into plants before COVID 
And already there was like the rate of people bringing plants into their homes was growing by 50 to 100% per year. And we wanted to validate. Wow, like, wait, that- wait, really? Yeah. Like, that seems yeah. like that seems like a thing that would be fairly stable. Like, exactly. uh, is it is it is it a is it a generational trend like millennials or younger folks being? I I have a lot of people on Twitter I follow that seem very interested in plants more than I have ever been. There's a couple of converging trends. Yeah, um, I think a part of it it's associated to like the mental wellness movement. So it's kind of this trend line follows one that's very similar to like meditation and yoga. Mm-hmm. Just five years later. So I think it's a very, it's a lot of adjacent interests there, but then there's also an aesthetic component to plants where like people are kind of decorating their spaces and they're getting more like trendy and in, in how they, you know, how they, even yeah. people who are dating, like you want to have like a space that you invite someone into and it's very nurturing. Right. Um, so yeah, there was definitely a generational kind of tailwind already happening. And then COVID just like cranked that up. Right. Cause then everybody's on zoom and you look in the background and some people have plants and you're like, Oh, that looks kind of nice. Like I'd like that. <laughs> I have this, I have, I still have this like barren white wall back here. That white is wall, embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. I need, that's why I was excited. I, I, I installed Greg today and I was disappointed. I couldn't buy the plants in the app yet. So we'll have to talk about that. <laughs> that's over. coming. That is coming. That is the no <laughs> plant segment. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we kind of saw an opportunity and we did some due diligence, some interesting things, I think, to identify, like, is there a revenue opportunity? And my favorite stat that I like to share that blew my mind when I learned it is Home Depot um, is a publicly traded company. So you can look up their, you know, annual statements and you can see how are they making money. And if you look up their statements, you'll see that they make more money on indoor garden than on any other product segment. Like Home Depot sells lumber paint appliances uh all these other they've got like that's like that's like actual revenues is that also margin because i would imagine these are high margin items as well i would guess yeah yeah depending on where how you're them. but yeah they're, they're they're pretty high margin um and no I, I, we only looked at revenue but they make like last night no. checked like 11 billion dollars per year in revenue um which is wow. uh and, and they're like that's one of, store right that's, that's one, one store. Uh, yeah yeah and there's like every town has four of these right? exactly yeah and home depot is like 10 or 15 percent of the plant retail market probably it's hard to estimate that okay exactly. yeah so it's like rough like a hundred hundred billion dollar a year kind of thing in the u.s yeah wow. and other estimates pin like that's the, that's the size of in-app subscriptions for anybody who's curious <laughs> like roughly like in that ballpark yeah, yeah, exactly. Like Apple's App Store subscription revenue. Oh, yeah, right? sorry, App Store. It's not even subscriptions. I think that's the yeah. App Store broadly. Yeah. That so we so we combined the plant TAM with then the <laughs> App Store growth in subscription revenue, and there's our business model. <laughs> there you go. Did you did you I mean yeah, you mentioned like wanting to get into something physical, into something science related. Did you have like a passion for plants or was this something that is like deep in you or or was it more like me and in-app subscriptions, which is like, well, this looks like a good thing I could work on. And I actually care about it and know a little bit about it. Right. So how, how did it, uh, how did you go like, yeah, this is what I want to do. That's a great question. It, it was like 75% the latter, same as you, where it was kind of, I, I got exposed to it because I started getting plants and I realized I did like them, but there was no brand to guide me. And there was definitely no science to help me keep them alive. Right. Um, but I, I grew up in the mountains. And so like I, I my family, you know, we, we, I lived in Mammoth Lakes, California, for any of the listeners who know where mm. that is. And so I, you know, I, I went on like a solo backpacking trip, like shortly before starting all this and kind of communed with like being in nature with no people around me. <laughs> and maybe that put me in touch with the plants a little bit more. Uh, but it was mostly uh, kind of identifying this is a realm of science I'd like to w- work in because plants are mostly physics based. This is something a lot of people don't don't realize, but because they're stationary, you can almost view them as like like a civil engineer would a bridge. Um so there's not so you can kind of really think about like the water physics, the light physics, and so they're a really great vehicle for learning um just physics generally and also how like the sun and earth orbit matters to that plant in that location. There's so much science there that it, we learned that there's a depth that was we were very interested in diving deeper into. Yeah, not to mention not to mention biology, right? Like, it's like a, as an intersection, right? Yeah, it's a big part yeah. of it. Yeah, biology is difficult though, right? Like if you're like an engineer who's trying to approach a science, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's messy, you know. Or, or like, yeah, exactly. 
yeah. But uh, if you think about it as a closed system, right? Like, yeah, you, you have it. It's potted. It's planted. You know, uh, lumens in. You know, water in. You know, nutrients in. Yeah. Um, you can. Uh, uh, yeah, you can. You can make some approximations, right? As we like to say. The closed system is is really important. I can. Uh, so so what Greg does is Greg predicts when a given plant is going to need to be watered. And that's like the super simple, like simplified functionality. It's one of the main things you need to know. Um, and the way we figure that out, talking about closed systems is, is kind of a fun fact. Um, you can very accurately measure the amount of water that a plant loses by weighing it on one day and then weighing it the next day. And the change in weight is the water lost in grams. And it turns out, so what we did is we did that for like 700 plants for like six months. And we, we then graphed what it was the grams of water lost per plant per day. And you get this beautiful pattern. Um, it's like, this isn't random. Like this is a very clear, like almost a heartbeat of a plant, um, which is a great fit for like machine learning, right? Yeah. So, so, so how did, how did you pull this off? Like practically, did you have like a big garage or a warehouse or something like that's, that's, that's more work than I usually do for software. So <laughs> tell me what that process was. I definitely did. So at one point I had like 150 plants and they all had uh, plastic uh, little pots and I had like labels. I named them like a one through nine and then C one through whatever. Cause I had to keep track of it. Right. It's yeah. all in our Postgres database. And, uh, but that didn't scale. And so like me and my co-founders, we were all measuring every day, every single day, hundreds of plants, but that didn't scale. So then we went on Craigslist and we started saying like, hey, we're looking for people to weigh their plants every day, twice per day for a couple of months. And we had uh, hundreds of responses. Like people, people care about their plants and they thought that it was cool to be doing like citizen science, right? And so we ended up with people in Berlin and in, you know, Sydney. And oh, right. Because it doesn't have to be local, right? Yeah. And actually, it needs to be in like Southern Hemisphere versus Northern Hemisphere because the location of like the sun and solar radiation affects it. Yeah, so we needed a global distribution for sure. This is like way off topic for um, for <laughs> apps. subscription apps, but if you if you squint, it's there are a lot of similar problems in understanding user patterns and user life cycle, and like there's so yeah. many hard to understand variables. Um, yeah. But one thing I'm curious about on the plant science front, like how much does like humidity and other things play into that? So if mm -hmm. you if you have, you know, 40 percent humidity one yeah. day and 60 percent the next, does that actually impact things? No, humidity. We don't really need to model humidity very much. Um, it's actually there's hmm. a couple of things that are misconceptions. Um, you don't really need to worry about misting or humidity and you don't need to worry about fertilizing. Like all of that is overdone um, for the most part. Like there's some cases where it matters. But um, I'd say for like 99 out of 100 plant types that you're likely to own, doesn't matter. And even more, people don't realize that the humidity reading that we see in the weather is what's called relative humidity. And it's right. it, not actually like a super scientific way to measure like how the water in the air relates to a plant. You need to look at absolute humidity, the whole totally different calculation. Basically, right. relative humidity changes according to the temperature. And so... Right. Yeah, humidity you can almost, uh, to be honest, like uh, ignore except for a couple of plants that like really evolved to be in like you can picture like uh, you know in England like uh, a United Kingdom like bog right where it's just so much water yeah. <laughs> like okay well those uh, like some some ferns like are from like the Pacific Northwest like Washington area where it's like constant rainforest those types of plants yeah you're gonna have a hard time if you're not um, in a very humid environment but the vast majority that you buy don't have to worry about it. I have, I have more questions on the plant physics, but I think, uh, I yeah. think I will let, I will, I will have to like save my curiosity. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to do the, uh, we'll have to jump on your podcast and, uh, talk, talk plants. Plant club. <laughs> just That'd invite, cool. if you need two, two newbies on there, just ask questions. We'll mm -hmm. be there. So from, um, from all of this, you, you started to allude to it a, a bit, but one of the things I was really impressed talking to you a couple of months ago um was just how ambitious your plans are with greg so you're you're kicking it off with a, a consumer subscription app um but tell me a little bit about like where you want to go from there yeah definitely that's a part of like going back to like how we started it why we started it um i, I have seen or like i've worked at companies and like not naming names that are very very revenue focused like just purely prime directive is we just need to make coin and as much of it as possible right? And 
then the question is, well, if you get there, then what do you do? Because if you do accumulate <laughs> a lot of revenue and a lot of influence, you kind of inherit a social responsibility, right? Because like you're accumulating all these resources. If you're like a Facebook or an Instagram, I think there's like general consensus that like you kind of need to think about the impact that you have because you're too big to not think about it, right? And so with Greg, like we really thought about if we manage to navigate this very challenging process of getting to scale, well, then what, right? And our goal, what's really interesting that people don't realize is that plants in our homes are just plants that were taken from various places in the world and put in our homes, right? Like there, there's no such thing as a house plant. It's actually just like a giant jungle tree that somebody took a cutting from and then transported it to England and then ended up in the United States, right? Um, so the physical principles that govern being able to predict how to keep those plants alive is are the same as the physical principles required to predict how to keep like crops alive, right? Um, like plants that are grown for our food system, of which there are like billions, right? And those plants, like it turns out plants are really like an infrastructure piece of our planet, right? Like plants are our life support system on spaceship Earth. And it's kind of interesting. Well, so it's, the, it's the first stage of catalyzing the sun's resources, right? Like um... That's exactly it. And a lot of people don't realize this, that basically all of life gets its energy from the sun. Like that is the input of all of energy into what we know as life. As, you know, maybe there's more on other planets that works differently, but as far as we know, all of life depends on solar energy. Yeah. And, uh, uh, Alex, you're leaving out some very, very uh, <laughs> sensitive uh, bacteria that live by vents. Okay. I love that you know this. I love that you know this, Jacob. <laughs> this makes me so happy. I'm, di I'm disappointed in myself that I can't think of what they're called. They're extremophiles, some kind. I don't know. Yeah. It's all, it's all, uh, it's all discovery documentaries. So there's a vanishingly small number of, uh, like living things that, uh, thrive on geothermal energy from the Earth's core, right? But that's like less than like 1% as far as I know. Yeah. Um, what people don't realize as an example is that like plants, a lot of people think that plants are just taking things out of the ground. They're like sucking nutrients out, sucking water out. They're actually also putting things back into the ground at all times. And so plants like, for example, they photosynthesize. So they take energy from the sun and they are the only thing on the planet that takes energy from the sun and then converts it into energy that all other life can use. And it's not only insects and birds and mammals like us, but plants are also depositing sugar into the soil. So it's a bi-directional flow. And that sugar wow. feeds the bacteria. Via, via, is that an active process while they're alive? Is it, or is it during decomposition? No, that is an active process. Like plants are actively um, depositing sugar into the soil and that, that those sugars feed the bacteria and fungi. And those bacteria and fungi are responsible for breaking down the uh, inorganic uh, nutrients like nitrogen into a, a, a format that plants can absorb because plants can't just like suck nitrogen out. They depend on, on that, those organic, um, uh, you know, facilitators. And so it's a very symbiotic relationship. And there's growing awareness now that like having a quote unquote living soil is crucial for our planet. And I'll, I'll tell you like an example of how, how much awareness this, there is around this. Um, during my due diligence for Greg, I went to a plant genetics conference. This is like, for any, for any engineers in the call, like imagine like AWS reInvent, except it's a bunch of geneticists, right? And so they're like presenting like how they run their projects and it's, it's a really cool parallel world. But half of this conference was dedicated to soil like microbiomes because that's how important it is. It's like truly like a resource. It's an infrastructure for our spaceship earth right that's amazing so so one of the things you and i talked about was not just you know consumer subscription to then like funding science which is kind of what you're yeah. talking about now but then also the potential to take this from from b to c to b to b so like you have yeah. um nurseries who have to manage the plants before the people buy them you have office buildings that have thousands of plants you have you know, commercial facilities, like there's, you know, plants existed on so many different layers yeah. of our, of, our, of, of use. Um, so tell me a little bit about kind of the, the long and short-term plans of potentially transitioning or not transitioning, but, but kind of building on top of what you've done for consumers to then expand into more B2B um, uh, use cases. Yeah, definitely. Some other examples, um, people don't realize that cities 
have to like municipalities have to maintain their plant inventories, right? Like there are people who manage the inventory of plants. They don't just exist, you know, um, or there are small businesses. Uh, there are people in most towns that grow food for their farmers markets, for example. Um, and so those are like smaller scale farmers. And then there's large scale farmers, right? And there's a real dearth of like talented software teams writing applications for any of those parties. And that's really the long-term opportunity to be spotted. If we can pull together a talented team to make products for those people, that's a long-term opportunity. And my, my thesis on this, um, which I think we're aligned on, is that uh, like delightful, simple consumer user interfaces, like simple software is appreciated by everybody, right? <laughs> uh, like enterprises don't want to use complicated interfaces. There's taste now in software, right? Yeah, in yeah. all levels of all employment, I think it's it's a bit of like our gen my generation aging into the the enterprise buying world, and exactly. um, also just like people have enough software experiences in their lives, they've learned to discern like, oh, this is good, and oh, this is bad. Um, yeah. And I think there's, yeah, I think it's really. I mean, we, I've, I've done it a ton in making revenue cap. I came from the computer right. subscription world. I learned a ton of lessons about onboarding and, right. and, and, and creating delightful experiences and like, you know, playing, playing against and into people's like, in, you know, uh, habits and things like this that you mm -hmm. carry into the enterprise world or B2B world. And it can really supercharge software. And it's probably what we're going to see. Yeah. Hey, I, 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 I think, I think there's still, there's always this like technical, leap or not technical mm -hmm. in the sense of computers, but technical in the sense of processes and, and whatnot when you leap from consumer to mm -hmm. to selling to businesses. But as you said, you bring those teams together, you you build your data set, you learn more about right the act of growing plants, then you know, someday you 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 can you can right. launch into those spaces, right? And there are some some famous examples of this. I definitely see it with revenue cat, because like you compare the UI to a SaaS that was created 10 years ago, and it's just more delightful, right? It's like simple, and I know how to use it, and I'm not like getting a headache while I'm on it. Uh, it's, it's nice, right? Compared it's very and, nice. It's very nice <laughs> of you to say. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm biased. Um, but, but like some examples, like Stripe became famous, right? Because like they had a good developer same. experience, which is almost a consumer, yeah. like, like uh, consumer. Yeah, same my, mindset, right? Just like make it easy, make it simple, make the, make the shortest possible path to value, right? Exactly. Um, which or, just, uh, yeah, it's great. Slack would be another example, right? Where it was, it was almost a consumer level application that just took off like wildfire because individuals liked it, right? And then they added enterprise grid, whatever they have now, or whatever, to sell it to, yeah. to, to, to Walmart. But nothing uh, they didn't need that to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's just, it's really cool that there's, there's just such a direct path from selling to consumers right now and then selling to municipalities who are managing their plants in a few years and then selling to, you know, the, the companies who have to manage this at, at scale and then selling to farmers. It, it's, that's really cool. Um, one, of, one of the things that, uh, again, that you and I talked about, you and I talked for like two hours a couple of months ago. And so there's, there's so much that I would, I would have loved to have recorded that and released it as a podcast, but. Um, Thanks David. Glad I can. Glad I can contribute. <laughs> one of the one of the fascinating things that you talked about was kind of your view on marketing, and, and so I'd, I'd love for you to talk about that more broadly. But then specifically, what you're doing with nurseries is, is just such incredibly smart marketing. Like, I mean, it, let me side tangent for a minute. So mm. it's just so obvious talking to you that you're not the average like app founder. You know, like none of my apps have had even even like one one hundredth of the due diligence and like market understanding. <laughs> well, I was say, I've never, I've never <laughs> bought something like I've never had a physical warehouse of plants. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and so it's just it's just so clear that you you think about things in a way that that most you know app people don't, most software people mm. don't, most even founders don't. Mm. Um, yeah. And and so I I think you know we've talked about this on the podcast before. Is there's just so many apps are trapped in this, you know, we, we just, we have to advertise on Facebook to grow. We have to do this. And mm -hmm. like that playbook of just, you know, dump a money, bunch of money in ads, uh, I think leaves so much on the table. And so I, I just love that you're, you're going to do that. And then we've talked about that. Um, yeah. You know, you, you're going to do paid marketing and, and maybe you have already started experimenting with it, but 
Uh, but yeah, so tell me about what you're doing with nurseries and then just kind of, you know, some of your thoughts on, on marketing and virality and stuff. Yeah, definitely. I, I think broadly, like what I would, I, I think I'm definitely aligned with that where uh, your broader point is that like building an app is half technical and UI design and getting the product really, really, really right. Right. But the other half that people are often uncomfortable about is needing to get it in front of the right people, right? And, and so in my mind, the way I break this down is the two steps. Like I have a theory that like the two steps in making a successful app business are make something worth using and then put it in front of the people who would use it, right? And it's like remarkably hard to do either one of those. But um, once we had uh, the beginning signs of retention, so we got our first like, I don't know, 5,000 users by like, posting on Facebook and on Reddit and like that kind of stuff. Then we started thinking about um, what is like the most optimal time for people to be introduced to Greg. And what we came up with is, well, we solved the problem of uh, if you have a plant and you don't know what to do with it, how to keep it alive, we solved that problem. And so the most natural moment would be when you get a new plant, right? Because it's like, that's the moment when you're like, oh crap, I have this thing, what do I, how do I keep it alive? And uh, so what we did is we reached out to a bunch of uh, plant retailers, like online, in-person, brick and mortar, all over the place. And we basically said like, hey, we will help your customers have a positive outcome with your product, right? And so let's do this trade where like we will give them, um, at this point we had a subscription tier. And so we, we said, we'll give them free subscription tier for N number of months. Like first it was six and now it's three. Um, and in return, can you put in our little QR code flyer, like nicely designed four inches by four inches recycled paper card that has a QR code and it takes you to download Greg, right? And, and so we did that. And now like when these retailers ship out a new plant, every single one of them has this little QR code in it. And it's almost like a digital companion to your unboxing experience, right? And so that was definitely like a very natural fit. And it, it led to our first, um, probably like 10 or 20,000, 15,000 users, I'd say. So can I ask, like, um, did you do that yourself? Did you have somebody on your team? Cause like, yeah, I'm, I'm in the camp that that's outside of my experience. I don't like calling the pizza yeah. person. Like I, you yeah. know, I, I don't know how to do that. So how, <laughs> how did you, how did you delegate that and, and, and yeah. find the resources in a small team to pull that off? Definitely. Um, so I, I, I'd say I provided the, the oomph behind it. Um, but then I have a good friend, um, who I've worked with in the past named Colin, um, who does like growth marketing stuff and that's his comfort zone. Right. And so I definitely did reach out to a bunch of the biggest partners in the beginning. Um, because the thing is that like with early stage stuff, founder led sales can be great, right? Like you don't always need it. It's better if you don't need it to be frank. Um, but, uh, we were so early and we had no partners at all that I was like, I have, this is crucial for us. Like we need to have a better source of user acquisition. That's like our next major challenge to solve. And so I did reach out to them and then Colin kind of like took over and scaled that, right? Cause like mm. I, ultimately like I needed to be writing code and stuff. Um, and so that now he owns that relationship and he's been able to, to keep that going further. Um, yeah. It's just one of these unique channels that, um, you know, I don't know, you can, as a B2C app founder, I think David's point's exactly on. I think we've, a lot of us have settled into this world where there's one or two channels yeah. to like get growth and that's paid, paid marketing. There's a yeah. lot of good um, growth resources out there. Um, oh, I, well, yeah, there's a lot of good growth books I've read it, moving into the B2B world that say there's like seven channels or whatever. There's only right. like so many like ways to get, and in, and in, and in B2C, we tend to be like, well, yeah, there's these two essentially, <laughs> but it's not really true. Like you, you can try stuff. And if, and I guess the trick is finding stuff that two things, one, it's approachable. Like that's why I asked about you. How did you make it happen? Well, you were able to start it off and then you had somebody to work with you to, 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 to bring it to scale. But then yeah. the other thing is it has to move the needle. Right. Yeah. And so, you, and so you have to figure out and like for a price that's reasonable. Right. And then that sometimes is hard to find as well, because I think with this, you have this adjacent high velocity market of users. You have a place your users are going every day, which yep. isn't maybe always the case for all apps. Right. It's hard to find. There's no meditation store that people are going to every day. Right. But yeah. you, I thought about there you that. go. That's your, that's your advantage. You know, I, I thought about parallels. Like I wonder if like fitness apps have tried partnering with gyms 
Um, I'm thinking like Fitbot. I'm, I'm sure the gyms wouldn't uh, be as eager. <laughs> Maybe right. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, possibly. I'm just thinking like if if like there's it, this also like sim. There's also this like benefit right from the for the the plant salespeople right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I would just just like theorycraft. Like I'm thinking if there's an app that helps you track your workouts. Like I use Fitbot. I'm a user. Um, it's a great app and uh, and, and it's a complete complement to the gym. Like I can't yeah. do gym without. I can't do Fitbot without gym. And I don't really do gym without Fitbot. So I, I, there might be a, a thing there or like with meditation, I'd be curious if uh, like yoga studios, because here's the yeah, thing is find adjacencies, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so here's the thing about a mobile app business that I have found is that one of our strengths is that we're building an audience, right? Like mobile apps only really work with retention. Um, and so you're like building up this audience of people that are committed to your app and your brand over time. And these smaller businesses are looking for ways to get audiences, Right. And so in the scale of a mobile app is such that you might actually be able to accumulate an audience that is valuable to those small businesses that can be a part of that trade. And so we've actually talked about that with our partners where we basically say like, well, you're referring users to us, we can refer users back to you. And our scale is large enough that it, it could actually be a meaningful number. Um, so I think you can kind of get, it's definitely a B2B strategy where it's like, I'm thinking of the strategic value I can provide to my partners in return for them providing value to us. Um, which might be why it's less common in the in the B2C like mobile app world, right? Yeah. Any other um, experiments that you've done or kind of things that you're working on in the in the marketing realm that you've seen fail or things that are being successful right now? We really want to tap peer-to-peer -peer referrals, and that has not been easy. And so that that is one that like have you seen the, have you seen the new StoreKit two stuff? Not, <laughs> uh, yeah, they. This is. I don't know when this is gonna go out, but they they dropped in 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 the WWDC this 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 week. They announced there's a new API that's gonna make that kind of possible now. Whoa, you'll be able to great. you'll be able to like extend somebody else's subscription um, based on some sort of like action. I think I I I don't know if they they made it as like um uh for extending for like customer, customer support use case. So there might be a case, maybe Apple's like, no, we didn't want you to use it for incentivized referrals, but it could totally oh. make incentivized referrals work in like a really smooth way. Sorry, not derail, but uh, it's, it. it's, it's, it's kind of a change, yeah. Well, it's probably useful to, to listeners. Um, we have definitely hacked around incentivized invites using promotionals. I will say Revenue Cat has been helpful. <laughs> oh, so and, and so you guys are you guys are pushing folks, but they have to go through like this like, uh, yeah, user-driven process, right? They do. Yeah, yeah. which is friction. It's friction. It's been fine, but it's not quite as productive as we'd like. So that one... I have a lot of users that get confused about the process, I would imagine. Yeah, and it's like a deep linky thing, so it's like not super transparent. Yeah. Um, the thing that's worked better, the one that I'm most excited about, is I love this one. Um, we uh, created uh, user-generated content loops. So basically people, there are certain things you can do in our app that like publish web pages on the web. Um, and, and so for us very specifically, it's that people like Greg, uh, we don't have a database of like every plant in the world yet, right? There's like 400,000, it's really complicated. And like, that's actually one of our core IPs is developing that database. And the only way we can do it is if we allow users to contribute to it, right? Um, we need to be like a crowdsourced like model and we get really good at curation. So people can create new species in Greg, and then we curate that. And then we publish that page on the web, and then it starts showing up in Google search traffic for other people searching for information about that species, right? And so I love the theory of this, and like check back in in a year to see how it turns out, but I love the theory <laughs> because it's like, okay, a user publishes a web page, which then more users find our app through, so then they join the app, and then they publish more web pages, and then so more users find the app and then they publish more web pages, right? And so it's like a very like positive reinforcement loop. And I think those types of recursive positive reinforcing user growth loops can lead to very healthy uh, growth curves, right? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that's the, 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 the challenge of these apps. You said it with retention is the big thing. I think you, yeah. you, you're, 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 you've got some tailwinds with keeping mm -hmm. a plant alive. Plants live a long time. Therefore, hopefully your app gets used a long time. But yeah. then um, finding these things that can take what is inherently like a decaying process, which is people mm -hmm. leaving your app and turning it into something more stable, which is how you build this like, yeah, long-term business. And then, then you know, for in your case, like use this as a platform to move into other segments and, and whatnot. But, mm -hmm. but, but moving away, 
uh, from this, like get them in, monetize them, let them go. Right. Model, which like, it seems just like the whole world's pointing us against, right. With, with the way that ad tracking is getting less easy to do and all this stuff. Um, so I was gonna say SEO, that's one of the seven channels, right? So you've hit at least three. You do end up dependent on on Google, uh, and, and right, and then something can change in a, a yeah. moment's notice, right? But like I've been wa- I've been watching SEO for a while, and I think that generally, as long as you're not doing shady things, you don't have to worry that much, right? Make make content that people click on and find useful. It right. will work, right? Like when I did our blogs for Revenue Cat, initially the ones that got really good traffic for us kind of got us off the ground. Like mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't think like, I thought a little bit like, Oh, what are people going to Google? Whatever. But no, I was just like, I'll just make posts that people will read and spend time on and share. And like, that's all it took. And you'll find the posts that some of the posts that I did that were intentionally, like I'm trying to be like SEO smart, didn't do that well. The ones where they were just really <laughs> good posts and like contained a lot of really good content and get referenced a lot. Those are the ones that still generate traffic for us. So like, um, which is nice cause you don't have to be like an SEO master anymore. You can kind of j- just make good stuff and do the yeah. smart things. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask, so, so have you, I think we talked about this, but have you, have you done some paid marketing and, and how's that gone for you? Yeah, definitely. We did use paid marketing to like, uh, scale up, uh, by like a two X factor. So that add a little bit of extra. And, um, so we've been running on Instagram and Facebook. Um, and it's been pretty productive to the point where it's almost net spend zero. Um, so like we spend a dollar in advertising and then we make a dollar in revenue. Um, we're still very early and so we haven't had enough months. Like the, the, the pain point is if you do a trial, it's actually a much longer, uh, payback period or like what finance people would call a float than a lot of people expect, because let's say you have, we're generous. We have a 30 day trial, which is like a bit much for a mobile app, but we do it. And so 30 days and then the user subscribes um, and then you get paid and then Apple will pay you a month later, (laughs) right? So you actually end up with like up to a 90 day float. Um, And so that's not as tight as I would like hope for, but it's better than nothing. And I think that's the key is that like, because we're a revenue generating app, we're able to do the ad spend in like a reasonable way. I think if that weren't the case, it would be very difficult. Yeah. And, And at some point, I mean, with with your other strategies of referrals of seo of building a base of users that then you can get more and more partners you know so so if you went to home depot and said we have 10 million active users then that's a much more attractive proposition to them um so at some point you know spending at a loss might actually make sense but it's amazing that the subscription um, uh, model enables you to even spend break even, but keep that flywheel going, which is, it's, that's incredible. And I think the net spend break even, that creates an interesting exercise because then it's like, it becomes, we can get into like financing, but like if you fundraise, that's then a good reason to fundraise. Cause then if you have more capital, you can put that capital to work. Um, Cause if you know you'll make, if you have a dollar now, you'll have a dollar again in 90 days as long as you can carry that float, well then at the end of 90 days, you have a dollar and a user, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. which is like, has has value, right? Like you've increased the value of, your user base has a dollar, you know, dollar per user active value essentially in the venture market or however you value it, right? So exactly. um, yeah. it, it does make sense. So yeah, I, I, want, I want to ask like, so you, you guys, it seems like your app's pretty developed for how long you've been working on it, a year and change, right? Um, and you mentioned, you mentioned this, um, like finding iterating to like a retention goal. Like, how did that go? Did you start with just like the basic function, like the most basic thing and then add stuff until you got, uh, and what, what, I guess specifically, like what metric were you looking at to say like, okay, retention is good now. Mm, yeah, that's a great question. So we, we did start with the most basic core functionality. And I think one of the things we did that I would do again is we just solved our own problem. So like I, so we, we started at the beginning of COVID. So like New York, where I live, locked down basically the day, almost the day that I left Tinder, right? And so, and so I remember, I'll never forget, things were shutting down. So I ran to the nursery nearby, plant nursery, and I bought like 30, <laughs> 30 plants because I was like, I need to have the problem in order to be deeply motivated to solve it, right? Because like, if you actually have like over 10 plants, keeping track of them kind of sucks a little bit. It's hard. Um, and, and so I knew that I needed the problem and that motivated us and, and, and our whole team really 
we basically just wrote like a prototype app to solve our own problem. Um, and once it was working for us is when we started bringing like beta users in. We did like a test flight uh, version for a month, brought in like maybe a thousand or I think it was 2000 beta users total in, our, in, in like August, 2020. And how did, uh, you, how did you get that list for the beta? Just Facebook and it was mostly it was, it was mostly Facebook like groups and stuff like that. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and, and we posted on Reddit. Reddit is hard, um, <laughs> but uh, we did a little bit of that. And, Rip off middlemen made easy. That's my favorite. We posted, I posted Reddit was where we launched to. And I have this, this favorite hater quote that I have like screenshotted on my desktop that I'll hold on to uh, until we IPO. <laughs> yeah. The hater quotes are something people should be prepared for, I think. Yeah. Uh, but let's see. So we, we solved the, here's the key is that we, we specifically for our app, we wanted to solve the retention piece first. And so we chose the behavior in the app that would be associated with retention. Because the way that I personally think about retention is that what, what, what happens is you have a trigger. So a person needs an external trigger to think about opening your app, right? So it could be a feeling that they have. Like Tinder, it's a feeling. I'm bored or I'm lonely and I want to see people. And that's an external trigger that causes a person to think about your app. Then you need value to, for them to actually open your app, right? Like, okay, I have this trigger and this app can address that trigger. So for us, we didn't have like an emotion, but we did have uh, the need for reminders. And so basically we uh, leverage push notifications very heavily. Our whole app is like a water reminder app right now. That's like the core value. And so we built that specific functionality, water reminders before anything else, because we wanted to validate is that a sticky behavior? Is that something that people will actually want to do and use over like six months, right? And because we knew we wanted to get six months of data, we had to build it first, right? Because you have to really think about how long it's gonna to take to get that validation. Um, and we were bootstrapped. And so we knew that like, well, we can't bootstrap for forever, right? <laughs> and so we, we needed to front load the questions that we knew investors would be asking when we went out to fundraise. So speaking of which, you just raised $5.4 million seed round. Yeah. Um, how, tell us about the, the, the process. It sounds like you were, you know, having been a tender and, and been in Silicon Valley and in the industry, um, that was your goal. You didn't come into it thinking you were going to bootstrap this forever. Um, and you were specifically kind of building up some of those retention numbers and other things that you knew investors would ask for. Um, mm. So, how, so, how did fundraising go having kind of iterated into that direction? Uh, it's definitely hard as hell. Um, I don't know, like you would ever say that it's not, um, but it wasn't, it wasn't like excruciating. Um, I think recruiting is actually probably a little bit more difficult, especially right now. There's a lot of, a lot of movement in the, in the, why people are working, how they want to work. It's, it's like easier. That. It's easier to write a check than it is to take a job. I think, you know, <laughs> like to convince somebody to do, you can things. write multiple checks, right? Yeah, it's not <laughs> it's not your every day, <laughs> you know. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, let's see. We actually to go back to your first point, we weren't um, completely. We hadn't decided that we were definitely going to raise VC capital. Um, mm. So there was like like we did work through that as a team, and we ended up deciding um, very specifically that our mission is one that we believe would benefit from us being good at raising capital. Because we think that if we can bring capital and talent to this industry in this problem domain, um, that's a good thing. And then even from a life perspective, like we wanted, we wanna move quick. We wanna like be able to grow. We wanna be able to like build delightful things for lots of people. Um, and so that was that was the main motivation behind the VC capital. I think it's a big trade-off. Um, so we, we definitely did not take it lightly. And we did deeply- closes, It closes off a lot of paths, right? It, it kind of puts yeah. you, kind of really narrows what your future, I mean, kind of yeah. shoots you on a trajectory to something potentially much, much bigger, but it really yeah. kind of like brings down your, your options a lot. It does. Yeah. And I think you just have to think about like, am I okay with needing to focus on eventually providing an exit to these people who trusted yeah. with their capital? Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. maybe something that people don't think about is like the CEO or whoever is fundraising, like you, you build a relationship with your, your, your VC partners, right? Like I consider them like life journey partners at this point. And so it's not that like, it's definitely not an adversarial relationship. It's more like I have a true responsibility to these people because we had a clear, like, this is their agreement is like capital. And then they yeah. have obligation to their investors too. And so, you know, I'm aligned with that. And 
I, I think you're right. You just have to think about like, is that is that aligned with my vision for this this journey, right? And then speaking of of an exit, um, mm -hmm. you shared with me you have a very unique approach to employee equity. Uh, right. I'm actually curious to hear Jacob's take on this, um, <laughs> having gone through the whole thing uh, himself. Yeah. But yeah, tell us about your equity structure. Yeah, we we definitely are. Uh, experimenting and trying something different. And I think there's pros and cons. <laughs> and Investors I, I, love that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure, those were easy conversations. <laughs> surprisingly, most investors were were okay with it. Um, I definitely had a couple that were concerned about um, the implications in the medium term. But here, I'll, I'll get to what it is. So, yeah, tell me, tell me what it is. Yeah, okay. So basically, like, we um, wanted to distribute as much of the financial ownership of the company across as many of the early teammates as we could. Um, and, and the reason for this, like the real thought that I had that whether or not other people think about this kind of thing, I would, I would encourage people to ask this, which is, um, if I have an exit, how big of an exit would I really want to feel very fortunate about? Right. And, and like, really think about like, how much money do I actually need? <laughs> right. Cause I think that there's a lot of people who get caught up with like, I want a billion dollars, right. Or like, I want like a hundred million dollars. And I've been fortunate enough, like we pointed out earlier, my first company was acquired for like a fine amount. And then Tinder totally exploded. I didn't own as much of it, but it was still a positive outcome. And I can say that like, that didn't change anything. And I know it's a very cliche thing to say, but I think it's a productive exercise that if anybody was founding a company, I would recommend asking, um, at what point am I, again, feeling fortunate about the outcome, right? And then what we really thought about is our ability to recruit a great team. And basically the decision that we made is that um, there's really two aspects to equity. Uh, and I'd be curious again, Jacob's take on this. There's, there's compensation for risk. So early teammates take more risk, quote unquote, right? And so that, that's a typical like reason for uh, founders taking a large- Opportunity large cost risk. risk mostly, right? But yeah. Opportunity cost and risk. And then the other dimension that I think about is effort where uh, early stage companies are hard <laughs> for everybody who's involved. And my prior experience pointed towards like the first 20 people who joined the company, or at least definitely 10 or 15, all worked uh, pretty much as hard and definitely at least not like 10, it's impossible to work 10 times harder, right? And so- yeah. and, with less, get, and with less glory, to be honest, right? Like, with less glory, they yeah. Don't, they, don't, they don't get all the likes on follows on Twitter or whatever, right? Exactly. Uh, try to distribute it, but yeah, it's, 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 it's a grindy place to be for sure. Which, which, not getting the glory is like a, it's definitely a double-edged sword. Cause I think that that glory is also yeah. a responsibility. Right. But right. Um, yeah. And, and so basically we decided to try this approach where we wanted to do this exercise of distributing that equity as equally as possible. And so we set up a mathematical curve where whenever I make an offer, I just look at this math equation of like, what is the amount of equity this next person gets, right? Um, and and so, and we did that and basically projected out like, okay, each person gets to like, like if we reached a billion dollar company, each teammate should have an outcome of something like $10 million or more, right? Like something, something above that number. And it was really important to math that out because <laughs> otherwise it can go sideways. Yes. And um, yeah, and so basically that, that was our exercise. And we basically said like, okay, can we, can we turn that around a little bit? And um, the side effect that I like, so again, we're, we're early in this, like we're, we're a eight person team growing to 15 and it may turn out to be complicated. And again, we check in in a year, but what I like about it is that it did enable a completely transparent cap table, right? Um, and and yeah. that's nice. Cause like, I don't think it's like maybe required, but I do like being able to show people like this is who owns this company owns all with you, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's a positive side effect. Um, but there's definitely, it, it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Well, so David, my take is actually, we do something very similar. Yeah. No, we <laughs> so do. Like, also like, so interestingly and, and inside, inside baseball, I think, um, yeah. it, it's, it's, we, we did, um, something similar. Now we weren't as scientific with it for the first, like 
we had like a rough rule, but it was like the same, like each number, like the, the number like decreased, like, but this back off mm-hmm. curve, I found it a very, it's a very hard problem to reason about because you want, you want to think about this, very, you want the hundredth employee to have some skin in the game, exactly. yeah. right? But you, you need to balance that with like, Hey, like come join this company that you've never heard of. And like probably has like worse benefits and you know, who knows it's going to be, it's going to be a mess. Right. Yeah. And so like finding that balance is really hard. Um, and, and you know, I'm, looking at where we're at 30 people now and the complexity definitely grows. And then I think also you start thinking about like recruiting leverage and like what, you know, what, what, how much equity do I need to offer to be able to like recruit these different types of roles and things like that. And your systems get more complex, but, um, but, but it's still the same. Did you guys, did you do something special on special on founder equity to create like more, more room on the cap table or did, did you, how how many co-founders do you have? Uh, that's such a blurry line. I don't know if this is just me, but I never, <laughs> never know. Like, well, is that the fourth person? Like, no. I, mean, I guess that's true. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah. I guess that's a maybe that's a it's a YC thing is where they're like very clear, like who are that. the co-founders and who are not. Right? <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> but but yeah, I I agree. It's probably mostly a a label. I feel like we have six co-founders. Um, realistically, wow. there were there were two of us that were like thinking about this. You know, like. That's not true. There were three of us that were thinking about this like two years ago. Um, so we, I, I call them co-founders. And so we're all on this same plan. So like we have this graph where like I am the first black uh, dog. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. It's, it's really distributed like as much as possible. And so the hardest, this plan is definitely hardest on the first three people. And it requires incredible cultural buy-in to that. Because it means that outcome, like I I definitely worked on this for a lot longer than like the people who are joining today. Right. And like it was stressful and hard. But here's here's my 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 personal take. And uh, is that I actually think the risk of doing startups and I feel like YC may agree with this. The risk of doing startups is like so much lower than most people realize for people who have the fortune of having a safety net, right? Like if you're, if you, if you have a family and you don't have savings, then like, of course, that is a, that is a risky proposition. But for people who are relatively early or mid-stage in their careers and they have savings and they're not actually gonna end up in a really dangerous spot, then I think that startups are almost always a net positive if you really apply yourself. Because the amount that you learn and grow by solving that yeah. many problems uh, only accelerates your career, right? And so, going back to the risk versus there's also opportunity cost and then there's effort. I personally discount the risk for people who are fortunate enough to have that safe space. I discount that risk almost to zero because I think that it's just such a, even this time around for me, my second startup, I have learned so much and it's been such a good life experience that even if it didn't work out tomorrow, net win for sure. (laughs) Yeah. So part of the reason I brought it up was that I, when I joined, I told Dick of this, when I joined Revenue, this is way inside baseball. I don't know why we're getting this uh, opening, opening up on the podcast, but when I joined Revenue Cat, I thought more along the lines of you, Alex. Like I thought, well, why is Jacob getting so much more of the company? And and, and Revenue Cat's uh, like the first 10 employees and then the next 20, it's actually, it, it's very generous compared to the industry. Like Jacob did an incredible job and has been great with equity. So, but but early on, you, you're at a startup, and you're like, "Wow, I'm working really hard. He's working really hard. Like, why 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 is the outcome going to be so different?" But honestly, 18 months in, and Jacob having raised the Series B and like taking a lot of the hardship, like you as a founder are going yeah. to have to do things and be under amount of stress, and like there there really yeah. is. For the and, and I, I don't it's probably somewhat true for maybe those you know the, those first early employees have, carry a little bit of that load but the but mm-hmm. a, a founder just has to carry a different load and so it's always gonna fa- fall on that first two you know whatever people on the cap table right the, whatever it's gonna keep rolling until it hits you at some point and, and it, you know as it gets bigger. Um, yeah, yeah, I, you know, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting, this could very easily devolve into like the nature of capitalism and ownership, right? <laughs> because <laughs> it, does. It, does, it, it plays very much against this, like, you know, co- constant, like Marxist debate about like labor versus capital and like, what are the value and what is like value? And like, cause you know, you, you like you had this, whatever period it was one month, one year, whatever, that's like such, you know, if you build the, the the Greg of your dreams, which is a billion dollar company that's touching all parts of agriculture and plant, like how much, how much of that is from that one month, right? Like, why do you get, why do you get such an outsized return? Right. And I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it's, 
you know, maybe that maybe that's when the, the, the they'll be at my gates with pitchforks and stuff like that, and I'll, I'll deserve <laughs> it. But like, uh, but yeah, no, it is, it is, it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it, and it, for for you know, I think folks, our listeners, I think is, is interesting because when they're trying to make this decision of like, am I building? a B Corp? Am I building an LLC with my friends that we're just going to share mm-hmm. revenues? Am I going to go venture? Am I, you know, one thing I kind of went into venture a little blindly. Like I didn't understand mm. all of these aspects before I filled out the YC application. That was basically <laughs> like, I'm doing venture. I'm going to fill out the YC application. And luckily they kind of like taught me like, okay, this is what this means. And like, I'm still learning it as I go. Like, and now I think I kind of know like what I'm in for. Um, but I think it's something undereducated on and like, it's mm-hmm. hard to do without firsthand experience. And like, you've been in other startups and had exits and things like this, mm-hmm. um, which are great educational experiences, but, um, it's not something to be thought on lightly because it really will kind of, it's really hard to change paths mm-hmm. after a certain point, right? Like you can go bootstrap to venture, but going back is almost impossible. Yeah. Um, you can even, even doing something like an LLC where like you split it between a few people while, okay, somebody leaves, like, what do you do? You know, there's not a clear path for that. These are really things like that you have to understand, um, when you're, when you're taking your app into a business or de- deciding what you want out of, you know, your work and your life. So, um, it's great that you're playing with it though. Like, I think it's great when, when I think as founders, sometimes we don't push the limits enough with, mm-hmm. with just the status quo. Um, but it's, it's how, it's how things get better. Like is, is, is by, by, you know, people with a little bit of leverage being like, we should do this. Right. Exactly. And I think that that's the key is that I don't think that like our approach is, is better. It's an experiment. And I think it has trade-offs that are equal. It's just, what is your desired outcome? Right. Yeah. And so what, what we were really solving for is we wanted to end up with a team in four or five years of people who are very bought into still being at the company. Right. Cause we really wanted to build a place where, like we're not trying to graduate out into an exit to like another giant enterprise. Like I very clearly telegraphed to our VCs that our desired outcome is an IPO. Like we do have to provide an exit to our investors um, and who knows what will happen. Like, gosh, that's like so, so pie in the sky, right? Um, Hopefully we get there. Um, But in any case, that's the problem we were solving for is I was thinking about, like ultimately I'd wrap this up into working backwards where like we thought about our end state and I wanted to have, you know, a hundred teammates that were like, I felt very authentically were like just as bought into this as I was. And so I optimized for that objective function, right? But then it, it comes at other trade-offs where like, David, you're completely right that like the amount of stress that I have gone through in the last, you know, year and a half is soul crushing. <laughs> um, it's like, it's very and, 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 and even I do have thoughts like, well, why don't I own like 25% of the company or something, right? Um, I definitely do not. Um, but I'm very at peace. Which, which by the way, that's, 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 I mean, I don't own 25% of the company anymore mm. because like we had dilution and all that stuff. But like at that stage, that's, that's, that's pretty like very open-handed, right? Like you've yeah. shared a lot I and mean, you've got other founders, obviously, or, or you know, yeah. but I, I, that was the clarifying thing that makes what I think what you're doing so unique is that you started with employee zero, right? Um, right, which right. Typically yeah. more common practice is if you have some like group that you call co-founders, they get some like chunk of the pie. And then like you have like an option, you set aside some amount of equity for, right. um, for employees and you work backwards from there. Like we set a goal to be at a certain percentage of employee ownership by the end. And we worked backwards from there. But I think that's the whole point is that you do have to start with this end state. And that's not just for equity planning. That's for all of this. Like, what is the end state? Mm-hmm. Have an idea. Cause you got to convince a hundred other people to go there with you. You've got to like convince yourself that you're going to want to do this that whole time. And so, you know, we, we we're pretty settled on that, that IPO path as well. Like, of course, it's a very far journey and like lots can happen between here and there. And like, I can't promise that. I mean, it, it is an unlikely outcome just by the definition of it, but if, but it's useful even at this stage to be like, that's where we're going. We get there. I don't know what the journey's going to look like, but that's where we're going. So I, I, I think it's a smart way to run it. Yeah. And then what you were saying earlier, Jacob is so true too. And I, I think a lot of the people listening will fall on a pretty wide spectrum from just you know, indie developers like I was you know, a few years ago, where I still had to think about this. And I actually made mistakes around this. We're like, you know, oh, let's build an app together. We'll do it 50-50. No exit plan. No, like, what if things go wrong? What if we bring in a third person? And I learned through hard knocks that, like, 
you you need to look at that end state and figure out yeah what can go wrong between here and the end state and and make some decisions early on that account for those things because if not you're going to put yourself in a bad spot so so anybody working on a on an app business or any business needs to think through these things like how do you split up ownership how do you uh, manage potential exits? How do you vest the ownership over time so that if somebody leaves early, they're not having an outsized um, return on a minimal investment? Um, but anyways, I, I really appreciate you opening up about this, Alex. And then Jacob, I kind of put you on the spot. <laughs> that's, uh, um, I think what you're doing with Revenue Cat is great. And I mean, I, you know, I feel like I was, you were very generous with me on stock and, and, and the first employee. We'll go ahead and, we'll go ahead and link to David's compensation package in the, <laughs> in the show notes. I love the point that like it is, it is philosophical, right? And I think it is worth like entrepreneurs talking about the options. Um, it's fast. Sometimes there are companies, there's like the whole open comp model of like buffer, you know, actually yeah. helping their, their salaries and equity and stuff. And uh, that, that's an interesting approach too. Um, yeah. Being intentional about it, I think is my advice. Right? Being just don't, yep. just don't fall into it. Like not, not having a point, right. Think about it. You know, not a lot necessarily, but do think about it. Well, and really the, the working thing, like what is, what is your desired destination? Can you kind of picture that world and then reverse engineer what steps will get you there? Cause that's really, that's also product development. It's company strategy, financing. Like if you are raising capital, you have to be able to describe where is this capital going to get us? Cause it's not going to last forever. It's always going to last less long than you think it will. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, there is so much more I wanted to talk to you about, but I think that, that what we did talk about was really fun and interesting and honestly, really different. You know, we've had a lot of podcasts that, that talk about monetization and talked about retention or other things. And so hopefully this is a, a really unique take that I think a lot of people can get, get some value from. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, Alex, and uh, definitely looking forward to uh, talking to you more in the future as a, as a Revenue Cat customer. That's uh, nice. Um, so I'm going to put links to your, your Twitter and to the Greg app in the, um, uh, in the show notes, but anything else uh, you wanted to share uh, as we wrap up, you're, you're hiring, right? So, uh, we are hiring. Yeah. yeah. We're hiring, uh, uh, senior engineers, uh, staff engineers and a product designer and a head of brand. Uh, so if anybody wants to help wow. apply machine learning and help machines grow plants that we can make the ecosystems and the food system a little bit better, uh, reach out to us. That's a great pitch. That's really and, tight. <laughs> and get early in a in a very unique experiment where you're going to get more equity than you typically would in a startup. So that's that's a huge pitch. That's strong. It is, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. We'll we'll put links to your hiring page in the in the show notes as well. So, um, but yeah. Thanks. Thanks again so much for being on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Alex. Fun conversation. I loved it. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Thank you.